If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy based in Washington. And I'm Andrea Drush, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we're diving into the half-truths and pants-on-fire lies that swirled around Washington in July. Andrea, who's going to help us break this down? We've got PolitiFact Executive Director Aaron Sharrockman. He's going to walk us through some of the month's biggest doozies. We've got Trump on the economy and Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on just about everything she said this month. We also have our very own Adam Walner, who's going to update us on the Influencer Series and talk a little bit about the importance of guns in some key states. Always good to have Adam on the show. Is it? Be nice. All right, all right. It's fine. Even though he's from Wisconsin and is a Packers fan, it's good to have Adam on the show. All right, Walner jokes aside, you ready to do this, Andrea? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared to fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So we're going to start with our favorite subject on this segment every month, Donald Trump. And we're going to talk about what he had to say on the economy. Of course, the GDP numbers came out last week. They looked pretty good. But the president, not always tightly constrained by facts, I think, when he talks. And I think we're going to go through with you, Aaron, some of the things he said and maybe get a a more thorough understanding of where the economy really lies. How's that sound? That sounds great, let's do it. Okay, well, Donald Trump said this. In the second quarter of this year, the United States economy grew at the amazing rate of 4.1%. Was it in fact amazing, Aaron? Well, we're not gonna put that on the truth-o-meter because amazing is very subjective, but it's clearly not all that unique. Uh, the president has talked about four and 5% GDP growth. He's talking about it as a quarterly measure. And by that statistic, that's good, it's strong, but it's, again, it happens over and over. It happened five times during Barack Obama's watch, for instance. So what you really wanna see is annual growth of three or 4%. We'll see if that happens, but the 4.1% is strong, but not amazing. Right, you mentioned that it happened while President Obama was running the country. It happened in 2014. Actually, the political context, of course, are 2014 because Republicans are arguing that a growing economy will really help them in the midterm elections. Didn't seem to help Obama and Democrats too much in 2014, as I recall. We'll have to see. All right. All right, so the second piece of this is, is Trump says, these numbers are, quote, very, very sustainable. They might be but we don't really know yet. Really, what we see oftentimes in quarters is rapid growth happens in one quarter, uh, but it isn't necessarily representative of of a full year of growth. So if you're trying to grow at 3% for a full year, that's in the realm of possibility for Trump. And if it happens, it certainly would be an accomplishment. But the last time the economy grew at 3%, by the way, was 2005. So you're looking at that number, that's a bellwether number. Experts say it'll be difficult to hit, but not impossible. Let's look at something that appears to be really is a positive story uh, for the Trump administration. Here's what he said. This year before I came into office, private business investment grew at only 1.8%. Last year, it jumped to 6.3%. 
This year, it's growing at 9.4%, so that's a very tremendous increase. Yeah, that's positive, and actually the math checks out here, but I guess as a fact checker, I always have to add the caveats. Um, <laughs> that, the is, fr- that is your job. That is your job. <laughs> so in the first quarter of 2018, the growth was actually 11.5%, which is even better, and in the second quarter, we actually saw a slowing down to 7.3%. Really, when you talk to experts, they actually say the number overall is good, but the trend line actually might not be as positive because we're seeing a decrease in that number. All right, the last piece of this, speaking of Obama, Trump says, we had lost almost 200,000 manufacturing jobs under the previous administration. Since I was elected, we've added 400,000 new manufacturing jobs. Again, the math here is right, but this is where sometimes correct numbers can be misleading. The Obama administration did see a decrease of about 200,000 manufacturing jobs, but it's really important to note that they all occurred in basically 2009 and early 2010. And actually, if you look since February of 2010, the Obama administration increased manufacturing jobs by 916,000. So really, the way the numbers look really good for Trump is by basically saying, hey, remember that uh, Great Recession 2008-2009, and then, but really since February of 2010, we've been on an upward trajectory. Uh, So really, Trump is continuing uh, what happened in the Obama administration. Okay, great. All right, let's move over to Mike Pence at a July 19th speech in Missouri. He said, I'm proud to report to you that ICE agents removed more than 226,000 illegal immigrants from our country. In fact, they arrested more than 127,000 illegal immigrants with criminal convictions. ICE removed nearly 5,000 gang members from our streets. This claim rates true. Something we don't do at PolitiFact all that often. So Mike Pence here is correct. He's using accurate data. Really, this is in the context, right, of some Democrats calling for massive reforms or even the elimination of ICE. Republicans, including Pence, are kind of standing up and saying they do an important service for our country. Um, The one caveat here, again, not enough to to make the statement anything other than true, is that uh, of these 127,000 immigrants who were arrested by ICE, Uh, Most of them were for really minor offenses, essentially minor drug offenses or driving offenses or, quite frankly, for being in the country illegally. So if you were thinking these are the bad, bad dudes, well, that might not be necessarily true. But on the numbers, Pence here is absolutely correct. Uh, But 5,000 of those are gang members? Obviously, Trump and the Trump administration has made a big effort uh, to go after MS-13 and other gang uh, activity around the country. And so that, again, is another number that they can tout as a success. I believe the technical term is not bad dudes. It is bad hombres. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is the, the technical term here. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she has been kind of the new political star this year ever since she defeated Uh, Joe Crowley um, in the New York 14 primary shockingly defeated Joe Crowley in that primary. So Ocasio-Cortez gave uh, an interview to a local PBS affiliate in July in which she said a couple of things that if you pay attention to political Twitter made the round certainly. Uh, The first of that. Unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. 
Yeah, no, uh, not only is it not the case, this is part of a larger claim that rates pants on fire. Mm. Uh, in fact, over the last 12 months, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who keeps this statistic, said the multiple job holders range between six and seven million. That's certainly, obviously, a significant number of people. But when you compare it to the overall American uh, workforce of 148 million, certainly not everyone has two jobs. It's not even close. Okay, and then there was there was a second part of that quote, too, that came under scrutiny, and, and let me give it to you, Aaron, here. It's, Unemployment is low because people are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and can barely feed their kids. Yeah, again, this is an equally dubious claim, and really there's no math or statistics to back this up. So again, if you trust the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's just no way Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez here is right. Uh, the BLS breaks down the number of people with multiple jobs. Uh, that's people who are working one full-time job and one part-time job, people with two part-time jobs, and people working full two full-time jobs. When you do that, uh, you come to a very, very small percentage of people who might be working 70 or 80 hours a week. So at most, you're looking at 310,000 people who are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week in a pool of employed Americans that totals nearly 150 million. So uh, like the first claim that everyone has two jobs, there really is just no evidence for this. And so these claims together got our lowest rating, which is pants on fire. And for our final fact check, we will go to Texas, a Democrat on Democrat claim here. State House Representative Roland Gutierrez, who said in a fundraising email that state Senate candidate Pete Gallego canceled a meeting with Sandy Hook parents because of his cozy relationship with the NRA. Yeah, this rate's false, and, and we have the pictures to prove that the meeting happened. Uh, so what happened here is the Huffington Post ran a story that included uh, some language saying that Gallego had canceled this planned meeting with the families of Sandy Hook victims. And so Gutierrez ran with that story as part of this fundraising email. But you have to read the fine print. The Huffington Post ultimately uh, issued a correction or an update to its story saying, no, in fact, that the Gallego did meet with the Sandy Hook families. And actually, one of the Sandy Hook families uh, posted many pictures on, on Facebook saying the meeting, of course, happened. Gallego said basically I had to delay the meeting. And so it wasn't canceled or postponed. Uh, it was simply delayed that they met for an hour and an hour and a half. The Sandy Hook uh, family members said uh, Gallego listened intently and was courteous uh, during the meeting. So again, in this case, this is a good example of where a politician needs to just go the extra step, I guess, if they're trying to be accurate. In this case, uh, Roland Gutierrez didn't do that, and that's why we rated this claim false. All in all, an interesting uh, scene center on the state of gun politics and Democratic primaries in Texas. Absolutely. I mean, you would think there'd be few things that would be more damaging than snubbing a Sandy Hook family in a Democratic primary. Well, hey, Aaron, as always, man, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. You got it. Let's do it again next month. Thanks, man. So for our next segment, we're going to bring in our coworker, Adam Wolner, who runs the Influencer Series at McClatchy, designed to track where this and other issues fit into the political conversation outside the bubble. Adam's got some fresh info for us on guns and a few other issues. Andrea, Alex, thanks so much for inviting me back on. Alex took some talking into it, but <laughs> yeah, took, I, yeah, took some I was real, yeah. took some real talking and invite you back. Just so no pressure this this episode, yeah. no well, pressure at all. I appreciate you staying up for me, Andrea. That's that's awfully nice of you. All right, so let's let's talk about guns. You asked our influencers in Florida 
whether or not they were satisfied with the progress that state has made this year in the wake uh, of the Parkland shooting, whether they were satisfied about the, the measures taken. What did you find? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, let's go back a couple of months here. As you mentioned, that, that shooting happened back in February. And, uh, and that's really when the last time gun control was really at the center of the political conversation, both in Florida and around the country. If you remember all of the student-led protests, both in Florida and, and all over the nation. And lawmakers in Florida worked pretty quickly after that to pass some new regulations. Some of those included raising the minimum age to purchase some firearms, banning bump stocks, some new mental health regulations. But uh, in our latest survey of our Florida influencers, and just a reminder of, of what those are, we have this panel of 50 individuals around Florida who are some leading voices in a variety of communities, whether it's politics, business, academic, faith, you name it. And uh, we actually found some consensus on what they thought of the response from state officials in Florida. Nearly 80% thought that those measures that Governor Rick Scott ultimately signed into law after the Parkland shooting were a good step, but that more needed to be done. And uh, someone even further, 14% said it was an inadequate response. None of the influencers said that these laws were too restrictive and needed to be repealed. And only 7% said no further action was required. These influencers who come from a variety of political stripes think that, you know, all these months later, more needs to be done to tackle the gun issue in Florida. And it feels like that is representative of a broader feeling in the public. And if you ask people in public polls whether or not you think more has to be done to combat gun violence, usually you find a strong majority says, yes, there needs to be more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, you know, looking at some of the other numbers from our survey that I thought were pretty interesting, nearly 90 percent supported a ban on assault weapons. And this was an idea that was floated in the Florida legislature right after the shooting ultimately wasn't included in the package that state lawmakers sent to Governor Rick Scott's desk. And, and, and in large part, it's just because, you know, the gun lobby still holds a lot of sway, both in, in Tallahassee and here in Washington. And even though there does seem to be this consensus, both among whether it's, you know, the, in our influencer surveys or you just look at broader public opinion surveys, you know, people generally support a ban on assault weapons or universal background checks, these these sort of things. But turning that into action at the state house or, or at the Capitol building, you know, it, it's a much more difficult step to actually get that done. And and to that point, 62% of our influencers were either dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with how state officials have handled gun issues. Just 19% said that they were satisfied or very satisfied. So something for candidates who are running for office in Florida in 2018, including Rick Scott, who's now looking to become Senator Rick Scott this November, something for them to think about as they're running their campaigns over the next few months. That's interesting. I wonder how people would respond if it were something that actually kept them from buying something that they wanted to have. It's fascinating that no one has said this was too far. It maybe speaks to like, if you've lived with these laws for a certain amount of time and it isn't actually restricting what you can purchase, what is the reaction that people have having lived with it for a while? Is it different than what they thought it was going to be? Right. And and, and again, just to kind of stress that, you know, it's not that this uh, influencer panel is full of, of Democrats or liberals, those who have been pushing these sort of regulations. You know, there's plenty of conservatives and Republicans in, in this panel as well. And even they clearly seem to think that there is more that could be done. Uh, certainly there were some that think, okay, you know, you know, we pass these measures after the, the Parkland shooting. Hopefully we can prevent a tragedy like that from ever happening again. And, and some of them focus a little bit more on 
not so much restricting who can purchase guns, but just increasing security at schools, for instance, as a way to to prevent this from happening in the future. But but again, you know, when only seven percent saying that that no further action was required, and, and nobody saying that these laws were too restrictive, there does appear to be some uh, consensus on this from members of both parties. But once again, actually turning that into legislation is, is a whole nother ball game. Now compare that to how folks are feeling about this issue in, say, like Missouri. So this week's survey in Missouri also focused on guns. And Missouri, obviously, a much different political climate than Florida and also hasn't had uh, the same sort of tragedy that, that we saw in Florida. But but once again, we saw some consensus on how to, to tackle the issue of guns. We had 92% of our influencers in Missouri who said that they strongly agreed or, or agreed with uh, universal background checks for gun purchases. Nearly 90% said that they wanted to make it more difficult for domestic abusers, for instance, to purchase guns. And uh, we also saw 80% of the influencers there uh, supported banning assault weapons, also saw high support for things like banning bump stocks or high-capacity magazines, less support for, for raising the minimum age to, to buy a rifle or shotgun, which is something that we saw in Florida. And, and once again, just 15 percent said no changes w- were needed. So it was interesting to see in a state like, you know, a state like Florida obviously is very divided. I mean, swings uh, from red to blue, you know, one election to the next. Missouri, a more conservative state, but still seems to be some appetite among the influencers, at least for further action on gun control. And where did guns fit into their ranking of issues more broadly? Yeah, yeah, and, th- and that's a great point. And the reason that we are surveying on guns in, in states like Florida and Missouri is that at the outset of this influencers project, because really this is designed to be a conversation between the readers of these various uh, McClatchy publications and the influencers, is uh, readers in both Florida and Missouri ranked guns as one of the five issues that are most important to them heading into the, the 2018 elections. That's maybe pretty incredible for Missouri, not something that we would have expected to hear. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not not a huge surprise that that was an issue in Florida, given how it was dominating the headlines just a few months back and it affected so many people there. But unfortunately, you know, the Parkland shooting isn't the only mass shooting we've had over the past couple of years. This is clearly something that voters across the country are, are thinking about right now. So you also asked some questions recently in North Carolina. They weren't about guns, but they were about another issue that seems pressing, not just in the minds of people in North Carolina, but across the country. It's about polarization. What did you find? Yeah, it's interesting that a state like North Carolina, that, um, that their own readers saw that political polarization is is an issue important enough to them that they would put it in in, in their top Most five. Most self-aware state in the union. Exactly. And yeah, and, and uh, North Carolina, you know, of the four states were doing this project, Florida, Missouri, North Carolina, California, North Carolina was the only state that chose political polarization as one of their the most important issues to them this campaign season. And we saw agreement from, from both sides that it's a problem, but of course nobody is quite sure how to fix it and nobody can agree on what the main causes are. We did see a plurality, 42% saying that gerrymandering is a prime cause, but when you dug a little bit deeper into the data, you saw it was mostly the, the Democrats and the independents in our in our panel that identified gerrymandering, not so much the Republicans. Our Republicans were more likely to point to the media in general or, or social media more specifically for sort of heightening these divisions, uh, both among voters and among politicians in the state. We also saw some people pointing to President Trump's influence. You know, now, of course, political polarization it was along well before President Trump took office, but a lot of people 
pointed to Trump as someone who has sort of deepened these divisions. And pretty fair, pretty fair assessment, yeah, I would say. Exactly, yeah. and but yeah, but but not a lot of consensus in North Carolina around the solutions for polarization as maybe we saw with with the gun issue in Florida and Missouri, for instance. And and I guess that's not a huge surprise, right? I mean, you know, it, it's a it's a very complicated issue, and when you can't even agree on what the root of the problem is, it's it's tough to, to tackle. It. I'm going to go ahead and file that under the less surprising things that we've learned in this show. The Democrats in North Carolina blame gerrymandering for political divisions, and the Republicans blame the media. Exactly. Yeah, not, not the most surprising uh, conclusions. But, but we'll see how, how that you know affects things going forward and whether or not there is room for candidates running in North Carolina in, in 2018 to find some sort of middle ground here and, and maybe break through the, this polarized environment. For at minimum, introduce some civility into campaigning, I suppose. <laughs> you also asked a question in our other state, California. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so California, the issue that they tackled this week was education, and education was an issue that uh, many of our other states also ranked in, in their top five of importance for the election. And the solutions are some that you know I think a lot of education proponents would be in favor of, whether it's improving teacher pay, making class sizes smaller, avoiding a, a one-size-fits-all approach that you know what, what works for a school in Southern California maybe doesn't work for a school in, in Northern California. So really it's trying to, to localize this and put the power in the hands of local governments. And that reflects what we've seen in other states. For instance, in, in Florida, we did an education survey a few weeks ago and improving teacher pay ranked as the top issue there. Basically that, you know, not only will that make current teachers more satisfied with their current jobs, but hopefully we can attract even more talented individuals to become teachers down the road. And, you know, education isn't, I think it's an issue that doesn't always get as much attention here in D.C., for instance, but clearly it's, it's important to a lot of voters in their local races around the country. And I also should mention, you know, the last time I was on this podcast, that that was our, our first round of surveys that we had done. This is now the fourth in a series that we're doing between now and Election Day. So, you know, rather than me run through all the results <laughs> of all these uh, surveys, we might be here for, for a couple hours. I would encourage readers, uh, whether it's Florida, Missouri, North Carolina, California, or, or from anywhere, to, to go to these respective papers' websites, whether it's the Miami Herald, Kansas City Star, Raleigh News and Observer, the Sacramento Bee. And we have um, influencer pages dedicated to all these stories that we've run. So you can go to those pages, look at the past stories, and keep up with the results of of these surveys for, for those that we've done already and those that will be coming between now and November. So all part of our greater strategy to have fewer surprises in November. We want to keep track of things as they are percolating on the ground from our papers out in the States. Absolutely. Okay. It is time for my favorite segment. And I think Andrea's favorite segment. Is it your favorite segment, Andrea? This week. This week it is. Uh, it's time for the lightning round where everyone on the panel identifies some issue or person that they think our listeners need to know more about. Adam. You're up first. Yeah, well, let's talk about the Koch brothers, or I guess at this point, it's really the Koch brother. Bro, uh, Koch bro. Kind of interesting, uh, the Koch brothers decided that they're not going to support a couple of Republican Senate candidates. The one that made the biggest splash was Kevin Kramer, who's running in North Dakota against Heidi Heitkamp. But sort of a little under the radar was that they're also currently not supporting Mike Braun in Indiana or Dean Heller in Nevada. Instead, they're focusing on states like Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. So putting them a little bit at odds with, I would say, with Republicans here in Washington who view North Dakota, Indiana, Nevada as all states that they really need to be invested in this fall. Now, they're not going quite as far as to back the Democrats in those races either. And a lot of people you know, are questioning whether or not this is an actual shift from the Koch brothers sort of away from the Republican Party. A lot of people may remember that in 2016, for instance, the Koch brothers decided not to support Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire due to her stance on environmental issues. 
what they're trying to get across this cycle is that there's a higher bar to earn their support. And clearly, they're, you know, they're not quite on the same page with leaders here in Washington. For instance, Donald Trump this morning sent out a series of tweets blasting the Koch network. So what I'm going to be interested to see going forward is, you know, if, if Kevin Kramer, Mike Braun, Dean Heller are in really tight races, are the Koch brothers really going to stay out completely? Or are they going to maybe be decide that they need to get involved and, and help out these Republican candidates who are still closer to their ideology than the Democrats running? So you know, is this is this an actual shift away from from the Republican Party, or is this maybe just a blip on the radar? Well, for given the, Koch the results with Kelly Ayotte last year, there's probably some Republicans who would say, if you want to make an example of somebody on this map, pick Kevin Kramer in North Dakota versus a you know more competitive race. They did actually leave Kelly Ayotte to die last year, and, well, and in fact, she did lose re-election, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and by a very tight margin as well, right? Andrea, you're up. Let's go back to the gun issue in Texas. Democrats are not the only ones cannibalizing over this issue. Our governor, Greg Abbott, also unveiled some ambitious gun safety plans after a shooting at Santa Fe High School. And it seemed politically brave at the time for a Republican governor. And right away, the grassroots activists in Texas complained about it. But this week, we got word from our friends at the Texas Tribune that Greg Abbott has abandoned this effort, some of the more ambitious pieces of it anyway. He said there's a coalescence against the red flag law. And he also has gone so far as to say that he never endorsed a red flag law. He simply floated it as an idea that the legislature should consider. We don't really talk about Abbott as somebody who has much to fear politically, but I guess we've identified someone he does fear in his state, his right flank. So my lightning round this week is this a little polling tidbit I have picked up from, let's just say, like a half a dozen Republican or Democratic pollsters in the last week. A lot of polls have just gone out from House candidates. Primaries are finished in many states. Now people, even the the sort of voters are turning toward the general election. Now is the time when you really get your first batch of good polls in a lot of races. And there is a consistent theme. It's not good for the GOP. Uh, That does not mean that that it's already doomsday for the Republican Party. But I had one Democratic pollster even tell me that it looks like 2006 and 2008 out there. What he meant was they would poll in certain races and it just kept coming back better and better for Democrats versus what they expected. So the big question, of course, is whether or not this is a temporary blip, maybe caused by both the Helsinki summit that President Trump had with Vladimir Putin and the child separation crisis at the border. That's possible. But it's also worth keeping in mind that unless those numbers start to change in the next month or so, again, we could be heading for a very difficult year for the Republican Party. Have Democrats learned nothing about the expectations game? Nope. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I think it's it's amazing to me when I look. They are, are all very upfront about the fact they think and expect Democrats to take the House. You know, the expectations game, I think, is, is just kind of spun out of control at this point. It's almost like a game. Republicans are like, we're not going to do very well. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> you idiots. How come you didn't see this coming? Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. Andrea, let's uh, let's do this again, huh? How about next week? We are coming back to update you on the latest findings from the other half of our elections project this cycle, Ground Game. We will have updates from Katie Glick and Alex Rorty out in the field. Sounds great. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.